Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. You can find. Uh, the passage that we're going to be focusing on this morning on page 978 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 33 of Ephesians 5. Before I get started, I want to go ahead and say uh, probably the single, uh, the topic I've preached on the most since I've been a minister is the topic of relationships and marriage. I've been in this passage numerous times and it always overwhelms me, but I've One of the things I've discovered during my ministry is that though I have thought at times that I've had an original thought, I never have. And um, so I want to go ahead and give credit to Tim Keller and to Brian Chappell, the president of Covenant Seminary, and to a friend and and co-pastor, John Stone. They all have in some way, shape, or form um, influenced me and what I have to share with you this morning. I'm not sure that I could could outline which ones were their points, but I want to go ahead and give them credit at the start. The thing I talk with students about the most at TCU is about dating and relationships. And not so long ago, I was having a conversation with a student, and they said they were, they were contemplating the joys and the woes of dating. And they said, you know, I think dating is like practicing for marriage. It's like practice for marriage. And having been married for some time, I was able to respond quite quickly and say that actually marriage and dating have almost nothing in common. Um, Dating is not practice for marriage. And the reason it was fresh on my mind is because about right now is the anniversary of the time that Kendall and I, my wife Kendall and I, went to the Gaylord Texan for an overnight. My mother-in-law flew into town. She took care of our children. Kendall and I left the kids behind. We went to the Gaylord Texan. We ate at our favorite restaurants. We saw the movies that we wanted to see. We stayed in a hotel by ourselves. There were no children around. We weren't paying bills. We weren't, we weren't dealing with discipline with our children. It was all about us. And it was all about fun. And it was all about joy. And I remember that during that trip, I looked at Kendall across the table during one of our, our, our meals together. And I said, I, this just doesn't make sense. This is the most fun I've had with you since we were dating. And then it clicked in. I realized that the reason it was the most fun is because when we dated, all we did was the things we wanted to do. We had fun with our favorite concerts and movies and restaurants and musicals. We did all, we, we, we just loved being together. There really wasn't any pressure on us at all, but simply to enjoy one another. And yet marriage is full of responsibility. Marriage is hard. And if you do it well, it'll be the hardest thing that you ever do. But I think the question that I want us to ponder this morning is, why is marriage so hard? Is it faulty by design? I mean, after all, there are a lot of people today that simply are saying marriage is simply not the way to go. That there's really no reason to get married. It'll end in divorce or or you'll, you'll, you'll be in a relationship that makes you bitter. 
that won't bring out the best in you. And so let's just live together. Let's just be in a relationship without a piece of paper. Is marriage faulty by design? If you will, look at God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up this passage to us this morning. Our great God and King, we thank You that you're the God that lives in relationship with us. We thank you that you are a God of grace. This passage before us this morning is one that makes us nervous. It makes me nervous. Because as I read it, I realize how far short I fall of your requirements, of your design. Lord, all of us that are married, endure hardships, all of us that are in relationships, endure, endure conflict, the most normal relationship that we will most likely at some point be a part of is the relationship of marriage. It's how you've created us. So, Lord, we pray that you would open up your word to us this morning, that we might behold marvelous things and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the best parts of being a campus minister is walking with students for four years and then possibly at the end of their time in college or shortly thereafter, receiving the phone call that goes something like this. Hey, Rob, we've got some great news. You're not going to believe it. We finally got engaged. That's awesome. I'm just wondering, we wanted to ask you if you would be willing to officiate our wedding service. And then I say, of course, I'd be delighted. That, that would be a, a marvelous privilege. And so we go through all of the, the joys of counseling and preparing and planning for this great wedding day. Probably one of the, the best parts of the marriage or the, the wedding weekend is the rehearsal dinner. If you've been to a rehearsal dinner, they all kind of go, I think, about the same way. Some are more formal than others. Um, but at the end of the day, there are toasts or words of encouragement, testimonies that are shared about the bride and the groom. It's kind of a friendly type of warfare if you think about it. Because basically what happens is you have to have an even number of people that testify about the greatness of the bride, just as many that testify about the bride as do the groom. It goes something like this. The, 
the groom's sister will stand up and she will look at the bride and she will tell the bride that her brother is basically perfect. And that the bride is extremely lucky and fortunate because she's marrying way out of her league. And she hopes that she will realize what a great gift that she's getting in her brother. Even if she hates her brother, she'll say that because you always love your family more than you love the other family. The second thing that will happen is then the bride's We'll have a friend or a family, maybe uh, one of the bridesmaids will stand up, possibly someone who's outspoken and, and suggests that actually you have no idea just how great this bride is. She's, she is perfect. She's no, I, have, I can hardly even recall a time when she has done anything that was wrong. And I just want to go ahead and say that you really, really need to care for her and love her especially well because... You are so lucky. You are not even fit for this person. And so there's a little bit of tension. And finally, the, the dad, that's you know the, the groom's father, begins to close this thing down before it gets too awkward. Well, not so long ago, we were at one of these friendly warfare, um, friendly fire rehearsal dinners. And uh, the groom went to the front. He was not a professional musician by any means. But he pulled out his guitar, and his, his bride was sitting, you know, kind of right in front of him. And he pulled out his guitar and he began to strum away in front of all the people invited to this rehearsal dinner. I'd say probably about maybe 75 people. Eric Clapton's version of You Look Wonderful Tonight. Now that song will melt almost any woman's heart. It's a bit cheesy in parts, but I remember watching and I had my camera out and I was taking pictures of his mother and of her as this song was being sung. And they were both captivated by the glory of this groom that stood up front and just sang this song about how wonderful his bride looked and how much he wanted to be in relationship with her. With her. Now, two things happened that night. The first thing that happened is the bride and the groom went home and they realized what they'd been realizing for a very long time. They could not stand another moment without living together and being husband and wife. The second thing that happened is all the other people that were married went home and wondered why their husband wasn't more like that groom. Why don't you sing Eric Clapton to me? Why don't you ever do anything for me? Why don't we ever, why don't you, you're worthless basically. I don't even know why we're married. The brides went home, and I, the, the grooms went home and they thought, why are you not, why are you not more like her? Look how beautiful she is. Look how, she's just so kind to him. She, she just, she laughs at all of his jokes, even if they're not funny. She does all of those things. And so you, you had people that went home, first of all, bitter. And as it begins to set in over the weekend, a hopelessness and a despair set in. Because people who are in the throes of marriage, at times they begin to wonder if they're ever going to make it. You see, marriage will be the hardest thing that you ever do if you do it well. And I think it's especially hard for Christians. Because you see, for Christians, there's this pressure to be perfect. There's this pressure that you can't have problems, that we can't use the word, we can't say we fight. We have to say we, we have disagreements. We can't say that we, we argue. We can't, we can't acknowledge the fact that there indeed are days that we wish we weren't married to the person that we're married to. We can't acknowledge the depth of, of the pain and the questioning and the rawness of our emotions that, 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 that just continually is stirring like a hurricane within us when we're in the relationship of marriage. We have to put on a facade. We have to act like it's all together, like we have it all together. And I think at the end of the day, what we often conclude is this, that marriage must simply be flawed by design. That God has created this institution where we are guaranteed to fail. 
But what I want to suggest to you this morning is, is that marriage is not prone um, to be, it's not flawed by design, but rather we are the ones who are prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God that we love. We're the ones that are flawed, not by God's design, but by our own doing, by our own choosing. Sin has come into our lives and corrupted us. You see, God tells us in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, that it's not good that man should be alone. And God has created the institution of marriage for our holiness and for our happiness, that we might glorify Him and that, and that our greatest good might come into play. I want to talk about three things that hopefully will help us to unpack um, the design of marriage and how it is that we might find hope and fruitfulness and success in our relationships, whether you are married, whether you have been married, or whether one day you will be married. Hopefully all these things um, will be applicable in some way to you. I want to speak about it in the negative a bit, though. Not because I want to have a negative result, but I think hopefully we'll gain a positive result from a negative phraseology, so to speak. And this is what I would suggest. The first point I want to talk about this morning, if you're a note taker, is this. That um, marriages fail because God designed marriage for serving your spouse. Let me say that again. Marriages fail because God designed marriage for serving your spouse. If you think about it, getting married is at a minimum crazy, if not insane. I think about this. I think people get lost in all of the preparation and all of the wonder what color the bridesmaid dresses are going to be and what food are we going to serve at the reception. What season should we hold our wedding? And all these really weighty and important questions are entered into. And all of a sudden they find themselves before God and all of these witnesses at the front of the church. And the minister does this thing called the declaration of intent. And this is how that goes. The dad is standing there. He's given away his daughter. The, uh, the husband or the bride, the bride and the groom are standing there. They both have to answer this question. And this is what it says. To the man, he says, will you have this woman to be your wife? And will you pledge your faithfulness to her in all love and honor, in all duty and service, in all faith and tenderness, to live with her in the institution of marriage according to the ordinance of God? Are you going to do that? Are you willing, basically, to serve this woman for the rest of your life without any guarantee of what you're going to get back? And they say, yeah, I'd be glad. I'd be awesome. I'm really looking forward to doing that. Yes, of course I will. And then shortly thereafter, we have the vows. And the vows go something like this. I, you know, he or she take you to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant doing what God's done with us before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife in plenty and in want and joy and in sorrow in sickness and in health to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. There are no fringe benefits in those vows. There's nothing in those vows that says, I'm going to do all these things as long as you do those things for me. As long as you meet these few requirements for me. No, it's a complete giving up of oneself to the other person. That's the very definition of marriage. God designed marriage for serving your spouse, not for being served. It, it jumps out at us in verse 21. The men, and I'm not going to beat up on men or women this morning, um, but I will say this, that men are very prone to forget verse 21 for some reason. We jump right to 22 without 21. 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We oftentimes think of submission as the thing that's reserved only for the woman, for the, for the wife, whereas actually submission is mutual. God calls both the husband and the wife to submit. But then he goes on in, in verse 22 and he begins to outline the roles of the wife and later on the role of the husband. 
The role of the wife is, it says in verse 22, it says, Submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. The primary responsibility of wives is submitting to their husbands. It's not a result of sin. Actually, before sin ever entered the world, God designed both of these roles. He designed that the wife would be a helper, not daddy's little helper, not someone that could put a stamp on an envelope and mail it every now and then or or clean dishes or clean toilets and do all the very menial tasks, the things that are extremely unimportant. No, God's design was not that women would be belittled and little helpers for daddy. But actually, the term helper is most often used in the scripture of God himself. It's one of the most important um, characteristics or names for God. And submission goes something like this. We won't unpack. I'm just going to kind of tell you what it is, and we're not going to unpack each one of these individually because we don't have time, but I'll tell you a little bit about each one. The first thing that, that God means when He says wives should submit to their husbands is this, that submission is the completion of another person. That as a wife submits to her husband, her chief goal is the completion of her husband. And this is not... a. a It's the pouring out of herself. It's not the reserving of herself, the reserving of her gifts and abilities and talents, but rather it's the pouring out of all of her gifts. It's the maximization of all of her talents for the benefit of her husband. The second thing that it means is that submission is the care of another person. That the chief goal is to care, to seek that they might be nourished and cleansed. The passage goes on and talks about how husbands are supposed to wash their wives with the water of the Word of God. But the scripture also tells us that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. I cannot think of a more um, sanctifying relationship than, than the relationship of marriage, the husband and the wife. And just as wives are to, just as husbands are to, to point and drive their wives towards Christ, so wives are to do the same for their husbands, that they might be glorious and beautiful and holy before God. And the last part of it is, is that submission is the respect. A wife respects her husband. This is emphasized in verse 33. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. I had a pastor friend at a, in Greenville, South Carolina. We were standing outside of a presbytery meeting, the regional gathering of churches. And he was talking to me about some of the frustrations that had come upon him at his church. He couldn't get anybody to do any of the tasks in the church except for one woman. And this woman... Um, volunteer to change the Bible verse that was out front, out in the front of the church because nobody else would do it. And he said, no, you will not do that. You do everything else around here. And he was frustrated, so he decided that he would do it. So he went out to the, to the Bible verse sign, and he began to put up a new Bible verse. And he said, Rob, you would not believe it. People were driving by and giving me the strangest looks, as though I was from Mars. And people were saying things to me. And I, I mean, I couldn't get what was so strange. I said, well, really, what, what Bible verse were you putting up? He said, I was putting up, wives, submit to your own husbands. And I thought that might be a clue of why people were driving by and giving you strange looks. Because most people don't get warm fuzzies when they think about that particular task, that particular verse. But you know, if we really understood the glory of it and the privilege of it, I think it would change the way that we respond. Because submission is a privilege. It's, it's, It's how God's designed us. But then God goes on to talk about what service from the husband's perspective looks like. He says, husbands, in verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That that submission um, for a husband is, that that love for 
the role of the husband. It is submission, but it's a different kind of submission. It's, it's servant leadership. There's leadership that's required, but it's servant leadership. It's not being the boss. It's not saying, I want this and I want that. I've had a hard day at work. Please bring me my newspaper and a cold something to drink. And would you mind handing me the remote? I'm too tired to get up and get it. it that's not what leadership's about. That's actually the very opposite of leadership. Uh, leadership is about sacrificing yourself for the glory of another person. It's about giving up yourself for someone else's good. It, Paul goes on to talk about it. He says that this servant leadership looks like sanctifying your wife, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, that, 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 that you, the husband, might present your wife to yourself with splendor before Jesus, with, with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the way that husbands are supposed to love their wives. It's servant leadership. When I was in seminary, we had uh, someone that lived in the same complex where we lived. And this particular gentleman who was in seminary had about five children. And his wife always looked drained. She looked like she was on her last leg because she was young and yet she looked so aged because she worked so hard as a mom. And I can remember him telling me one time that he doesn't change diapers. They make him gag. And I thought, I bet she loves changing diapers. I bet that's the highlight of her day. She just looks forward to more dirty diapers so that she can change them because she really enjoys it. It's a lot of fun for her. I thought, who doesn't gag over changing diapers? I mean, that's one of the worst things that you have to do. And he thought because he was the head of the house, you know, he's the leader, he doesn't have to change diapers. He can tell her, hey, I think he's got, I think he's got a dirty diapers. You've got to take care of that and hand me the remote when you're going back there. You know, that's, that's not leadership. Um, a lot of the times I think... Uh, I think that we just kind of missed the boat. And, and I want to kind of wrap this up to get all these two things together and say it this way, two kind of maybe hopefully helpful applications. I think the biggest problem with service from a wife's perspective is that wives are called to respect their husbands. And I think wives do a great job of loving their husbands. They, 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 they shower tons and tons of service upon their husbands. They, they serve them, they, they feed them, they care for them, they, they maybe possibly they wash their clothes or they help them figure out if it matches or they, they do all these honeydews for them all the day long. They love them all the time. The problem is, is that they don't really respect them because they're like Proverbs talks about their dripping faucet. They always have complaints. They're always keeping a record of the way that their husband falls short, of the fact that they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They go to Bible studies and they have prayer requests. And these prayer requests are, are it's really gossip, but it's, it's, it's kind of clothed in the, the aura of a prayer request. If you could just help my husband, I tell you, he is just doesn't ever do what he's supposed to do. And we just, I'd just love for you to pray about that and kind of keep this here. You know, and they, they begin to belittle them in public. And that doesn't make a man be a man. Um, that doesn't make a man want to love you. Um, it's not up to you to get him to love you, but that certainly doesn't help produce a happy and holy relationship. And then on the flip side, I think that, that husbands are called to love their wives, but they respect their wives. They come home and say, I do not know how you do it. We've got all these children. I don't see how it is that you keep them all clothed and you keep them all fed and you keep them all clean. How it is that you do all the things that you do around here. They might even say, you have the hardest job that I can think of in all the world. But they don't really love them. They don't really seek to get to know them. They don't really seek to talk to them. They don't really seek to care for them. They don't invest in them. They just kind of respect them from a distance. No, the reason marriages fail is because God designed marriage for serving your spouse. I want to say a second, make a second point 
And this is going to be really quick. The second reason I think marriages fail is because God designed marriage for leaving your family and cleaving to your spouse. Four times in the Scripture, this same verse is repeated. It's, it's, it's stated here in Ephesians 5, in Genesis 2, Matthew 19, and in Mark 10. And the verse I'm talking about is verse 31. It must be pretty important if it comes across four times in the Scripture. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The relationship that our society places the most emphasis on is not the relationship of the husband and the wife. It's the relationship of the parent and the child. And one of the biggest struggles that I come across in ministry, and unfortunately that I've experienced myself, is how children, how I, how a lot of other students and young people and older people have a hard time leaving their families, and how families, parents, do a very bad job of helping their children leave them and cleave to their spouses. Um, one of the questions that I like to ask people in counseling is, where are you going to spend premarital counseling? Where are you going to spend Thanksgiving and Christmas? And then all of a sudden this dialogue sets in. Well, of course we're going to be at my house for Thanksgiving after Christmas too, I think. Next year we go to your house. No, I thought we were, you know, and then you kind of talk about it. And then that, then after the first Christmas, you kind of leave there unhappy because they do things different than you did it. I mean, of course, Santa does not wrap presents. No, Santa does wrap presents. That's where your family is wrong. No, we don't do Santa. We do Santa, you know, whatever it is. And you do it all wrong. We have turkey and ham at Thanksgiving, and you all just did it all wrong. We don't roast ours. We fry it. You know, all sorts of stuff. And so you begin to have your parents, you know, the way you grew up and the way you did it is the right way. And your spouse just better get on board and start doing it the right way. And of course, then your family say, uh, "We'd really like to give. We'd really like to help you all out. <clears throat> we'd like to give you a financial gift. Are y'all planning on sending your children to Christian school? Because we're going to pick one out for you. Are y'all going to send your children to a classical school, or what are you going? How are you going? Where are you going to live? How are you going to dress? What are you going to do? How are you going to spend your time? And parents are, of course, all about helping as long as they can control the decisions that their children make. And, and it's funny because the children are, are, are easy to submit. You know, one of the worst things in the world is to be poor, so it's a lot easier to just take money and say, well, we'll go ahead and take the money now and we'll work it out. It won't be that big a deal. And all of a sudden you find yourself in one big mess. Because the hardest thing to do is to leave your family. You see, when a man cleaves to his wife, there's a new relationship that's been created. And there's a new way they're going to do it. It's a new wife and it's a new husband. It's a new marriage. It's a new family. And there are new ways to live it. And there are new ways to do it. And there's not one right way as far as the traditions of your parents. Some of you may say, well, that is awesome because I'm not going to have any problem with that. Or I, I don't have any problem with that. I hated my family. I didn't like anything that they did. I wanted to be completely the opposite of them. And yet you fall guilty of the same thing that Paul tells us not to fall guilty of. Your parents are still controlling the decisions that you make. Because you've not been able to leave them, but even though you're not like them, the very activity, the behavior of your relationship is being controlled by trying to be opposite of them. We've got to leave our families, and we've got to cleave. We've got, we've got to become one with our wives and with our husbands. I'll just give one illustration about this. A friend of mine, Hal Farnsworth, is... Uh, the pastor of Redeemer Church in Athens. And I've looked forward to this day. I can't even tell you how much I've looked forward to this day. I mean, I, one of the things I hate most of all about being a campus minister is I have to tell students all the time, please don't be intimate 
with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Please don't sleep with them. Please don't, you know, please don't cross the boundaries of intimacy and sexuality with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And Hal said that was the one thing that he always told his students. That when he was a college campus minister at Vanderbilt in Mississippi State, he was always telling his students that, to control themselves. And then when he got to be a pastor at a church, his application changed. Because he started focusing on the second half of this verse that we're reading. He started focusing on holding fast and cleaving and becoming one with your wife. And he realized that what he had to tell all the members of his church that were married to please be intimate with their spouse. To please be one. To please put all of your effort into knowing this other person spiritually and physically and emotionally and intimately. Because that's God's design for marriage. That's, that's where blessings begin to, to sprout and to pop up in our relationships as we leave our families and as we cleave to our spouses. But the last question we've got to ask, uh, the last point we're going to hit real quick, but it's, it's the most important one of all is, the marriages fail because God designed marriage to be dependent upon Him. When I'm doing a wedding, and I've been to one of those friendly fire uh, uh, rehearsal dinners, where the bride and the groom look perfect and everybody else goes home distressed, I normally think that I have one requirement for them and one requirement for the congregation on those days. What I want to suggest to them is that even though they're so talented and they have so many numerous abilities and they're so successful, I want to guarantee them that those things will not guarantee success for them in marriage. That if you depend on all of your talents and your gifts and your abilities to provide for you a happy marriage, then you are doomed to fail. And then what I want to suggest to the congregation is, is that if you're in a marriage that feels like a complete failure, if you wonder if you made a huge mistake, I want to suggest to them that there's hope. And the hope for both the new, the new marriage and the marriage that's been existing for some time is, is found in this passage. It's found in verse 23 where Jesus says that He is our Savior. It's found in verse 25 where it says that Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, that we might be sanctified and cleansed and washed, that we might be presented to the church, that we might be presented to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. That if our marriages are to succeed, if, we're to, if they're to flourish, then they have to be dependent upon Christ. The only way that you'll make it is if you get a hold of the gospel. If you see your sin first and you repent and you turn from it and you run to Jesus. If you're one who is prone to forgive and not harbor bitterness over uh, the sins of your spouse. If you're someone who, who seeks to be about reconciliation and not reminding of guilt and failure. And if you're someone who understands your need for Christ more and more each day and you're always running to Him to make you whole, to make your relationship beautiful. You see, it says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives don't want to submit to their husbands a lot of the time because a lot of the times their husbands won't be worthy of submission. And husbands won't want to love their wives because there'll be numerous times when wives also won't be uh, worthy of their love. And yet neither of the roles are fixed in the worth of the spouse, but they're fixed in the worth and the reverence of Christ. What He's done for us you see, the love of Christ, this rich and free, is the basis for beautiful marriages. I'll close with this story. I was talking to a student. This happened to not be so long ago, but I've had this conversation numerous times. And this student 
has done all the things that you're not supposed to do, made all of the grievous mistakes that, that a person could make. And as we sat there and talked, she said, we started talking about marriage, and she said, you know, I mean, I just don't think I could ever get married. Her family's divorced. Um, she's had her grandfather, not only did her dad have an affair, but her grandfather had an affair, and there's a history of broken marriages throughout her family. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is, is that all the failures that she's committed, and she says there's just no way she could ever get married. And that's probably one of the most grievous things that the church has communicated to people, is that marriage, successful marriages are dependent upon successful people. That they're dependent upon keeping the law and doing all the right things and making it on your own. But you see, the glory of God's design is that you don't have to be successful in order to serve. And that you don't have to be successful in order to leave and to cleave. But the success of your marriage, what makes marriage beautiful, is not your beauty, but it's the beauty of the love of Christ. It's a dependency upon Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit in your heart to transform you and to make you the person that He's recreating you to be. You see, if you get the gospel, no matter where you are, whether you are to be married one day, whether you're already married, or whether you've been married and know people that are, uh, the hope of of all relationships hinges on understanding the gospel and being transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is hope. We thank you that you have designed us to flourish and to succeed. We pray that you would be the God of mercy and grace, that you would breathe new life into all of our relationships. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of